What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you, Josh, for being on time. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. To ponder the error of your ways. So, Adam, if I'm the brain, what does that make you? Well, sadly, I'm pretty sure I'm Vice Principal Richard Vernon in this scenario, Josh. The Breakfast Club is 30 years old this year. This week on the show, our Sacred Cow review of the John Hughes classic set, of course, in the Chicago suburbs. And we'll hit 88 on the DeLorean and go back in time for our top five films of 1985. Also, Leonardo DiCaprio versus Bill Murray and more second round results of Film Spotting Madness. That and more. Show Dick some respect. At Unfilm Spotting. Film Spotting is presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, what does Mubi have available this week? Among the titles is City of Life and Death. This is a landmark Chinese film. It's the first to dramatize and visualize the rape of Nanking. It comes from acclaimed director Lu Chuan and uses stark black and white photography to rebuild an era, reveal the humanity, and pinpoint the villainy. Another offering, and on a lighter note, is Two Days in New York. This is actually Julie Delpy's follow-up to Two Days in Paris. It's a Gallic farce and part New York indie. Co-stars Chris Rock. I do like Two Days in Paris quite a bit, so I'll have to catch up with that one. I don't want you to bust me on the fact that at some point in a later review, I'm going to steal the line, reveal the humanity, and pinpoint the villainy. All right. It's just too good. I'll keep quiet. <laughs> Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile apps to download films to watch offline and our listeners can get movie free for a month just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now that's mubi.com slash film spotting You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, or as you can refer to us for the next hour or so, Wyatt and Gary. My plan here is to just quote Weird Science the entire show to see what percentage of the audience and maybe what percentage of my co-hosts I can alienate. Hey, better that than Vision Quest. Oh, no, come on. You didn't. It's all in honor of our top five this week. Speaking of Vision Quest, the best films of 1985. Yikes. That plus we'll announce which actors advanced to the Elite Eight in Film Spotting Madness later in the show. But first, we reconvene The Breakfast Club for a sacred cow review of the 30-year-old teen classic. Don't mess with the bull during our discussion, Adam, or you'll get the horns. What do you say we close that door? We can't have any kind of party. We're burning, checking us out every few seconds. Well, you know, the door's supposed to stay open. So what? So why don't you just shut up? There's four other people in here, you know? God, you can count. See, I knew you had to be smart to be a, a wrestler. Who the hell are you to judge anybody anyway? Really? You know, Bender, you don't even count. If you disappeared forever, it wouldn't make any difference. You may as well not even exist at this school. Well, I'll just run right out and join the wrestling team. (laughs) Maybe the prep club, too. Student council. No, they wouldn't take you. I'm hurt. Our Sacred Cow selection this time, Adam, is a movie that's maybe not sacred to cinephiles in general, but it certainly is to those of our generation. 
The Breakfast Club, John Hughes' chamber piece about five high schoolers stuck together for a Saturday of detention, came out in 1985. Yes, 30 years ago. You and I were not quite yet in our teens then, but I know I at least was already fascinated by all things teenager. I'm guessing I didn't actually see the movie until it came out on video most likely, but at that point I did watch it enough times that I could predict most of the lines of dialogue during this revisit. Judging by your brief review on Letterboxd, your revisit was a blissful trip down memory lane. Five stars. That's as high as it goes on Letterboxd. Were you aware of that? Word. Five stars. (laughs) Okay. I'm guessing one reason for this lavish rating is because you picked up on a secondary level of wisdom to the movie when watching it now (laughs) as an adult. Oh. One of the things you noted in your review was the truthfulness of an observation made by Allison, the basket case played by Ali Sheedy, who contends that we all become our parents. So what was it like to watch The Breakfast Club now, not as a kid, but as a parent? And how do you feel about Allison's other observation? When you grow up, your heart dies. Is your heart dead, Adam? Is that five-star rating just a shameless attempt to prove otherwise? It might be. You might be onto something. That is a little bit melodramatic, but I love that line, and I'll get to why in a moment. First, though, I do hope there's a little bit of magic in the air. Did you catch that when this film opens and you get that opening voiceover, that the date is the exact same date we are sitting here to record tonight? Are March you kidding me? March 24th. Of wow. course, it's March 24th, 1984. That's Saturday, That's 31 true. years ago. Yeah. They shot it before it came out, clearly, in 1985. But it's exactly the night. So, wow. like I said, hopefully that'll bring something to this discussion. And it is, for me, forget being able to predict certain lines. This was a unique Sacred Cow experience. We've always seen the movies first. That's what makes them Sacred Cows. We're revisiting mm-hmm. them. But in this case, I could quote, and to the annoyance of my wife, did quote <laughs> 80% of the movie as it was going on. I don't know, to get to your question, that watching it as a parent really came into play for me. My son Holden just turned 13. He's a huge nerd. He would be the Brian here, and he would use that term to describe himself and do it with pride. High school is hard, but I'm fairly constantly worried about my kids already. I'm a high dread kind of guy. More significant to me was seeing it as an adult. When I'm not the same age or, as you noted, a little bit younger than these kids, maybe I can't directly relate to their day-to-day problems. Besides having a different perspective, I was also just more aware of it as a movie, how it's constructed, and hopefully we'll get to that a little bit as well. I think that line from Allison, Ali Sheedy, though, is one of the keys to The Breakfast Club in terms of why it holds up so well 30 years later. It's not just that it was... I think that I can recall anyway the first movie to simultaneously establish these high school archetypes while deconstructing them. It's how seriously John Hughes takes these kids' concerns and how thoroughly he explores them. Amidst all of this comedy, sometimes broad, silly comedy, he goes to some really dark, serious places. Mm -hmm. And he does it as well in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If you think about Cameron, his daddy issues, destroying the beloved Ferrari at the end of that movie, I always found that tonal shift in Ferris Bueller a little bit cumbersome, a little bit hard to overcome because it's such a heavy moment. And then it's sort of like, oh, we're back to Ferris Bueller running around backyards and we're just supposed to forget everything Cameron's going to face and everything he's been through. But Emilio Estevez's monologue here, about three quarters of the way through this movie, about what he did to get the into bullying. detention. Yeah, and so why. Good. That's even darker than anything with Cameron. That unbroken take that underscores the weight of it, that character isn't just telling a story. He seems to be channeling something deep from within. Anthony Michael Hall's breakdown as well. 
Hughes is trying, I think, and succeeding at making us laugh, but he's clearly using these characters and this setting to really wrestle with something, wrestling with whether you can overcome your nature, your upbringing, or if you're doomed to become your parents. Can you stop your heart from dying? I think that, for me, Josh, is what makes this movie so timeless and universal. Almost everyone, but especially any junior high kid or high school kid, no matter what generation, can relate to that fear. Along with everything else the movie is dealing with as far as establishing your identity, retaining your individuality while being part of a group, trying to be accepted within that group or culture. So, yeah, this movie really did hit me about the same way it hit me 30 years ago, which is something I wasn't expecting because I hadn't seen it since then. Maybe actually in high school, I remember showing it to my now wife because she had never seen it, but I was still of that age. I was in high school. It really did resonate with me. Was it just recently, last week, I think, uh, with Cinderella probably, we talked about children's films for a younger age group, Mm -hmm. how it's important to respect that audience's intelligence. And the same thing happens for teen audiences where the filmmakers will often consider, let's just give them the lowest common denominator. The Breakfast Club does not do that. It's very interested in these kids, not as archetypes, as stereotypes as ways to get some funny jokes out. It's interested in their stories and the universality of their experiences. The bullying thing that you mentioned, Andrew's monologue, is an amazing sustained sequence, Mm -hmm. especially when you think about in 1985, clearly that was something that educators were aware of. But it was nowhere near to the degree of attention it gets today Mm -hmm. in terms of experts coming into our schools and having sessions with kids about being proactive, about Mm -hmm. keeping this at bay. But the complexity of it, too, why he does it, the mixture of emotions. That's what I'm talking about. The awareness of understanding here well before this was a common thing that people were digging into of what led to it and how this is an the act was an expression of Andrew responding to how his father treated him. And just the really haunting line that Andrew says, how do you apologize for something mm-hmm. like that? There's no way. It's all because of me and my old man. God, I hate him. He's like this, he's like this mindless machine that I can't even relate to anymore. Andrew, you've got to be number one. I won't tolerate any losers in this family. Your intensity is for sh- Win! 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 You son of a bitch. I mean, what movie would not only acknowledge that the kid is thinking about his action, but just move beyond the action? Most teen movies that deal with bullying are centered around the act of bullying itself. And here's something, considering the aftermath and considering the sorrow on the part of the offender. And we could talk about the way that the movie gives almost every character in this film a chance to consider who they are in that deep of a manner. So I think this absolutely stands up. It did for me as well. I didn't go quite as crazy for it as you did. And maybe we can talk about why well, you probably didn't I backed off a little when bit. When you were younger either, did you? <laughs> oh, I don't. All I remember when I watched it is just thinking. I, yeah, I, I loved it. And just thinking, like, is this what high school is like? Huh. Why, you know, it was kind of this because we were both younger than the people in 
the story, you're kind of looking at it as a primer a little mm-hmm. bit. And so that's why the dialogue would stick in my head. It was almost like you're packing these things so that you'll be ready when you get to high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's what I remember taking it in as at that point. But here, you know, it, it does just speak across generations and across decades. I would put it up there. A couple of titles that work similarly in the teen genre would be Splendor in the Grass mm-hmm. decades earlier in yep. terms of just getting at that idea of you know puppy love, much more focusing on sexuality there. Explicitly for about sure. sexuality yeah. and sexual and, tension. And, and that aspect of being a teenager. And then something more recent, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is another movie that I came out of and just thinking, man, that gets it. That manages to get at the heart of what it was like to be a teenager. And these movies, all three of those movies, they don't just get the look right. They don't just get the dialogue right. I might argue that The Breakfast Club does not get the dialogue right in a lot of situations in terms of the phrases they use. But what these movies all do is they embody the experience in such a way. And this film, Hughes does it primarily for the attention that he gives to the characters and also the cast. Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing would not work as well as it does without this phenomenal cast. And we can maybe talk about who we think rises to the top. I I finally came up with an answer after wrestling with that a little bit myself. Mm. Wrestling, is that a cue? No. Are you a big Estevez fan? No, here? I went <laughs> another movie? direction. Well, I didn't really think about it in those terms, but I did discover that I did appreciate these performances beyond what I remember as a kid, liking the movie overall and not really judging those performances here, being a little more objective or distance from it. I was able to see them as what they are. I think they are all really good, really strong performances. But I want to go back to the opening of the film because... All of these kids, this is the first thing I said out loud as Sarah and I were watching the movie. I'm like, all these kids are being driven to school by their parents. And yeah. yet they seem to me like maybe juniors or seniors. Maybe Brian is the youngest. He might be 15, a sophomore or something. But otherwise, they all seem like they're of driving age, but they're being dropped off by their parents. That seems so weird. And of course, then I thought about it for a minute as that sequence played out. And I realized it's all about that the parents. It really is. And you see what Hughes is doing. What he accomplishes there is he immediately gives us a window into their psyches. We see where they're coming from. And for example, we understand the disconnect between Claire and her dad, the academic pressure and demands of Brian's mom, the athletic pressure and demands of Andrew's dad, that blatant disregard of Allison's parent. I don't even think we know who it is. They just don't even acknowledge her and drive away. And of course, the loner bender who hilariously walks right in front of the car without stopping. He's the one who comes in by himself. No parent who cares about him. So the whole movie's set up right there, all those dynamics that we need to see. And before we discover them to be a certain type, we get to see them as people and see that baggage that they're carrying with them before they begin any of these interactions or these confrontations with each other. It, of course, sets up the whole trajectory of the story, as I said, but it also gives us some insight that the other characters don't have. I think it actually establishes a neat layer of subtext to a lot of those interactions and confrontations that we wouldn't otherwise be aware of. A perfect example is when Bender does his impersonation of what it's like at the Johnson residence. Great scene. The cuts to Anthony Michael Hall and his reaction, you can read it as he's hurt because he's being made fun of. But because we know what the dynamic really is like at home, we as a viewer appreciate that on a different level. We see through it a little bit and we recognize that he's not just hurt at being made fun of. He's actually hurt because he wishes his home life was probably that way. And it's not that way at all. So there are double layers to a lot of what's going on in this film. And we were talking about how quotable this is. And for me, 
in fifth grade when I saw this movie, we watched it hundreds of times. I mean, mm-hmm. probably not hundreds, but it felt like it. And we did know every single line. So one of the questions I was really wondering as I sat down to watch it now, like I said, at least 20 years since I last saw it, it was, could it make me laugh? Could I actually laugh out loud when I know all the lines, I know all the jokes and what's coming? I laughed a lot. Mm-hmm. I laughed out loud a lot at this movie. And it wasn't at the big, broader jokes, the things that did make me laugh a lot as a 9 or 10-year-old. It was the reactions, the expressions on their faces, the overall absurdity of some of those moments, like Bender and Brian, Judd Nelson and Anthony Michael Hall, taking their coats off at the same time. And (laughs) Brian acquiesces when Bender kind of shoots him a dirty look like, are you copying me or something? And it's not just that he decides to stop and put his coat back on. That's funny enough. It's that he then rubs his hands together like he's cold and he really wants to put his jacket back on. (laughs) That he feels the need to put on that show is really funny. The look Bender gives him when he does the I'm a walrus bit. He puts the pen on his lip. Those bits for me that I maybe didn't laugh so hard at, like I said, however many years ago, were really funny to me this time. A lot of those are the social cues that the film just nails in how teens walk into a room and it's immediately perhaps, you know, it still happens when you're adult, of course, but never more so as heightened as when you're a teen, you're immediately staking your place and it captures how that's done through gestures and through looks and those sorts of things. So life at Bry's, that scene is perhaps the standout to me. I had three scenes that I want to make sure we talked about. Okay. And we got to the first one already, Estevez's confession of bullying. I think that's crucial, and I think he's fantastic in it. And I like how Hughes uses the camera there, too, as mm-hmm. you said, unbroken, but also moving, moving around, around to include all of them in that's the conversation. Right. This was much more visually sophisticated than I would have expected in revisiting it. But the other two scenes I wanted to talk about are who I do give my MVP award, again, not that we need to, but to Judd Nelson. Yeah. And Life at Bry's, the way that goes from this comic impersonation that's also so bitter. I mean, it's just so clear that the reason this really bothers him is because his home life is not like that, too. And as much fun as he's making of Brian, that... He's also just furious Mm -hmm. because of this other element going on. And then how it transitioned to the impression of life at his house, which is really scary. I mean, Nelson, and we got to talk about this as well, how he treats Claire, Mm -hmm. because I think we look at that differently. People in general would look at that differently than they did in 1985. And he's scary with her, too. But I think that's a very good element of the performance. I love Mm -hmm. the different levels that Nelson brings to this, even when he has that early standoff with Vernon and he gets the four or eight extra weeks of detention, there's that moment. I got you. Yeah. There's that moment where he turns away and you can see that. Okay, most high school comedies would play that up purely for triumph. Right, he's the rebel. He's the rebel, but they hold it that one extra Mm -hmm. beat so that he shows he's pissed at himself for losing Mm self-control. He can't believe he did it. So those are two scenes. The other one goes to Nelson, too, and it is that early one where it's it's a sexual harassment slash seduction of Claire. And watching that very early on where where he's trying to find out, you know, what how sexually experienced she is. He's flirting with her at the same time. She's acting repulsed, but also pulling back Mm -hmm. enough here and there to I don't want to say toy with him, Mm -hmm. but to give him the hint that she's still listening. Let's just put it that way. For sure. All right. So in 1985 and as a kid, you know, I'm taking that as, wow, is this guy cool? 
you know, and, and you'll you'll hear from women, too. Or I think I saw it on it might have been the film spotting Facebook feed. That's where girls fell in love with John Bender. That the moment. bad boy. What's yours? Claire. 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 It's a family name. Oh, it's a fat girl's name. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm not fat. Well, not at present, but I could see you really pushing maximum density. You see, I'm not sure if you know this, but there are two kinds of fat people. There's fat people that were born to be fat, and there's fat people that were once thin, but they became fat. So when you look at them, you can sort of see that thin person inside. You see, you're going to get married, you're going to squeeze out a few puppies, and then... uh... (laughs) Oh, obscene finger gestures from such a pristine girl. I'm not that pristine. Are you a virgin? I'll bet you a million dollars that you are. Now, you read that scene today where we're much more attuned to things like sexual harassment and uh, it reads very creepily. Mm -hmm. But I think that's good as well because it speaks to the authenticity. So we could say we could put a politically correct label on this and say, oh, Breakfast Club is so dated because of scenes like that. But I think it speaks to an authenticity, again, of the Mm -hmm. social cues of how girls and guys whether it's right or wrong, do interact and how they handle those sorts of interactions. Now, the one place where we might want to talk about does the movie make a misstep is in following through on where does that relationship go by the end of the film? A, is that believable? And B, is that maybe getting us to root for something that really is unhealthy? Mm. I'm still trying to work my way through that because people read the ending differently as well, whether or not Bender and Claire do end up together Or was this kind of a one-off flirtation thing? Well, let's just go ahead and get to it because I don't want to sidetrack the whole review with it. But for me, it's not as problematic because I do see it as more of a one-off type of thing. I don't think come Monday, Bender and Claire are holding hands with each other walking down the hall or he's showing up at her house and angering her father. I see this as a one-time act of kindness and compassion and deciding to call a truce. But that's it. I don't see them embarking on any kind of a relationship with each other. Okay. I wouldn't go quite that far. I don't think they're holding hands on Monday either, but I think the movie wants you to believe there is a relationship that will continue there. And I think in having us root for that is where we might want to say, uh, okay, I don't know if that's that's quite so healthy. But that also brings to mind something I thought of after watching this. How did they not make the sequel, The Breakfast Club, Monday morning? And, <laughs> yeah. and let us know, you know, what, what really happened to these kids when they showed up that day. Mm-hmm. I, I'm totally with you. Nobody even gave each other a second glance. Yeah. I mean, as, as hopeful as this movie wants to be, if it really stayed true and was as authentic as it is to these kids, that Monday morning would be they don't know each other at all. Well, maybe we'll come back to this. It is sort of like before sunrise in a little bit where you wonder yeah. six months later what's going to happen. And the key question for 30 years, and that's one of the beauties of this film as well, is that we still have that question to ask and ponder and debate because we don't know the answer. But I'm with you, except I would say, Josh, a second glance is exactly what they do and no more. I think we get the second glance. I think there's a little the bit of knowing. social cue where they try to let each other know mm-hmm. that they remember Saturday exactly without right. anyone else seeing. That's exactly right. But <laughs> that's with Bender, true. 
I appreciated him as a young man, as a young kid, because I respected his verbal dexterity and his sort of just rebellious spirit. It probably was. Look, I wasn't growing up watching screwball comedy. So watching someone who was that quick and Mm -hmm. that witty and able to disarm people the way he was, that was attractive to me at that age. I didn't really see it as a performance in anything deeper than that until watching it this time. I do love his costuming as well. I picked him as one of the top five Halloween costumes I'd wear (laughs) this past this past October, but you watch it, it's such a hodgepodge of looks. He's grabbing at all these different places to try to form some kind of identity. You've got the flannel before flannel was a look, the boots, those hand glove things he's wearing a little bit. There's some of that kind of biker rebel criminal thing, yeah, but there's a also bit. a guy wearing that overcoat that he's wearing coat, like yep. he's a prep. You know, he really is just grasping at anything, and I think that applies to a lot of the characters here. But you're right in terms of the performance. That sense of anger and resentment, but also pain Mm -hmm. that underlies everything here. You realize, watching it this time, that he's overcompensating for everything. That confident routine really is just completely an act with him. And what is underlying everything is that fear that everything Andrew says to him at one point is accurate, which is that he really doesn't matter. And that comes through in Nelson's performance. And Claire calls him out on it, too. And that's where I like the Ringwald performance, where she definitely has those strong moments where she gives it back to him and lays bare. She sees through all of that because she's doing similar things. They're all doing similar things. So they all know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But who's going to admit to it? Well, first of all, they're going to call each other out on it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that as we talk about the look of this film, you mentioned that it was more visually sophisticated than you remember it. Or would have even noticed it. That's right. I think that shot, though, that unbroken take that rotates around the group is probably the only shot that really calls attention to itself in the film. But what I noticed this time, and this is one of those bits on the show here where audio certainly doesn't help us, a video essay would be much more instructive because what I loved is the editing. I really noticed this time how much of the movie is made by the cutting. Because it's not visually audacious and it has so many memorable lines of dialogue in it, I think everybody focuses on the writing and they give Hughes all this credit as a screenwriter. But all of the relationships, the character dynamics, it's all revealed in the silences in the looks on their faces, in their reactions. Yeah, reactions. Because it really is all about their perceptions of each other. And not only that, how we perceive their perceptions. So as I said before, everything is loaded. So when you cut to a reaction shot, you're really focused on how they're taking that in and what that tells you about how they see themselves, how they see the person who's talking. That is something certainly at age nine or 10, I didn't catch on to, but it's there. It really is in those decisions. And think about that. That has to be pretty formally rigorous because you've got pretty much the whole film five people sitting around each other and depending on how they shot it and depending how he was visualized it maybe storyboarded it or not there was probably a lot of coverage options to cut to so the editor could have gone in a lot of different directions but it's very precise every cut is done for a reason and every cut does have some meaning and that was something as i said that caught me by surprise this time for a movie that primarily takes place within that library. It does not feel static at all. Mm -hmm. And when they get out of the library, I noticed, too, that there's some nice framing of individuals or even them as a group within these long institutional halls. Mm -hmm. And you can just tell that care has been taken in trying to place them within this landscape and alienate them a little bit. I mean, we don't want to get too carried away in that you're going to put this in and it's going to wow you with its cinematography. But 
compared to most teen comedies mm-hmm. where the cameras just plop down and they go for the gags, it really does have another level going on. In, in the soundtrack, too, a little bit, with uh, there's the moment in particular, I think the same thing happens later on, but the one I'm thinking of is very early on when Vernon slams the door shut and Bender screams the F.U. Mm-hmm. And it, it echoes yep. in a way, and we cut to Vernon, and we we're not quite sure whether Bender even said it or if this is something that, you know, this is just how Vernon sees these kids. That's interesting. And yeah. it's amplified. And, and I, there's just a little, some nicely clever bits going on like that. For sure. Uh, Carl? What? Can I ask you a question? Sure. How does one become a janitor? You want to be a janitor? No, I just want to know how one becomes a janitor because Andrew here is very interested in pursuing a career in the custodial arts. Oh, really? You guys think I'm just some untouchable peasant, sir? Peon, you know? Maybe so. Following a broom around after heads like you for the last eight years, I've learned a couple of things. I look through your letters, look through your lockers. I listen to your conversations. You don't know that, but I do. I am the eyes and ears of this institution, my friends. Now, I thought it'd be interesting to hear from one of the key figures in the movie. Carl the janitor, John Kapalos, was available for us to talk to and do an interview with. And obviously, it seemed like a perfect fit for this 30th anniversary review of The Breakfast Club. And even though we couldn't do it, Golden Joe Dassault, our amazing co-producer, was available to conduct the interview. He took some of my questions, worked in a few of his own. And Joe got John Kapalos's take on why he thinks the movie resonated so strongly with audiences in 1985 and why it continues to. I think because it hits on universal truths that are always going to be there in adolescence. There's fear. There's uh, fear of failure. There's sort of dealing with your parents and all, all the sort of the incumbent issues that, you know, and you walk away from the film going, wait a minute, what, what just happened here was a sort of a catharsis for these people. And I think that kids continually relate to this movie because it addresses teenage angst and it doesn't talk down to them, period. I really responded to the fact that all of their problems don't get solved. And I don't know that I expected that, knowing the movie as well as I did, but I think a lot of teen movies might have gone there. They overcome their differences temporarily. They don't correct themselves or each other Nobody gets fixed, I think, here watching this movie. They don't absolve each other for their deficiencies and their foibles because, of course, they can't. That's not reality, and I think that gets back to what you were saying in terms of authenticity. This is a reprieve from those lives, but they're going to get back to those lives. And to use the word that I think is so appropriate, we heard from Carl the Janitor, John Kapalos, it's catharsis. There is a sense of catharsis at the end of this film, and I was thinking about why that final shot, that final frame of Bender with his fist up in the air, why that gives you this sense of triumph when at the end of the day you think nothing much has really changed here. And actually Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, is on the DVD and she talks about it as it's of course playing very memorably to the Simple Minds song, Don't You Forget About Me. She says it's just about a Saturday in detention but you feel like a battle has been won. 
Hmm. And she's right. You do somehow feel like a battle has been won or at least some kind of blow has been struck, right? Something something decisive has happened, even if it's not going to change everything forever. Some kind of blow has been struck against conformity, against complacency, falling into those roles and those prior beliefs about each other, and ultimately about compassion. And that's what I was hinting at when I said they'll at least give each other that second look. Mm-hmm. I think that second look is that bit of compassion. So lots of C words there, but catharsis is a big one as well as compassion. I think the right word is reprieve. I think that's dead on. And the difference is that this is a reprieve that you feel is formative. So if mm-hmm. it does not have a practical effect on Monday morning, hope the hope is it will gradually as they move on with their lives. All right. So let me pump the brakes a little bit on this, all this enthusiasm and, and just ask. You're not going to ruin this. The, <laughs> You're not going to ruin this. I just have to, you know, one of us has to be a little bit reasonable about the Breakfast Club. Some of the dialogue is seems like, I feel like Hughes understands kids much better than maybe he understood how they talked. Things like eat my shorts mm-hmm. and, you know, no one in whatever grade I was, sixth or fifth, would say that. You let don't alone, think he was being a little bit ironic? Bad, no, there, there's a lot of lines like that. The dance montage, too. I mean, I know, are they high at that point? Is that the excuse we give them? Right. Which I don't I think so. anybody really reacts to being high that way. Everyone gets <laughs> manic, like they're on PCP or something. Yeah, and they're doing these routines together. I mean, you know, oh, even, I had fun with it. Even as a kid, I thought that was pretty corny. So yeah. I don't know. I think those lines, Josh, it did occur to me that when he says, eat my shorts, and there were maybe one or two other bender lines where I thought, I don't think he would say it that way. But those are so compensated for by. All of the other really insightful lines and those those pieces of dialogue like you already touched on where you get the end of a scene with a line like Andrew recognizing how do you apologize for that. There are too many good lines like that where you just think. But that's why the clunkers stand out. Yeah, maybe. It's like, you know, they're a little more glaring. at all. No, (laughs) no, it really isn't. Especially when, as I was saying, a couple of other things I like. Paul Gleason as Vice Principal Vernon. He's phenomenal. And this is sort of like... When Roger Ebert revisited The Graduate after, I think, 30 years or 35 years, and he was kind of negative on the movie, and he told that story about how when he was a kid, he saw the guy at the pool party giving Benjamin Braddock advice about plastics, and he laughed at him like everybody else did in the audience, and now, 30 years later, he thinks, plastics, not a bad (laughs) idea, right? He has that different perspective being an older man. Well, Paul Gleason, as Vernon, at that time, was nothing but an adversary, an antagonist who didn't understand these kids. He was purely the enemy. But it's not a surprise that Hughes gives him that scene with Carl in the basement of the school. And you get a sense of his own disillusionment with his role and what he's doing there at the school. Why is he even there at the school on a Saturday at all for mm-hmm. someone who should be in a loftier position. I mean, it's he's making 30 grand. 31, I think he says. I make $31,000 a year. Yeah, it's not about redeeming him. It's not about us ever siding with him against the kids, but it is at least a little bit about getting his perspective. And I think that's enough. Having a little bit of empathy for where he's coming from as well, it makes him a more interesting figure when you have that bit of empathy for him. And I do think that Carl's line to Vernon underscores another key moment in the movie for me, along with Allison's line, which is, listen, Vern, if you were 16, what would you think of you? That's something that he probably hadn't thought of until Carl said that to him really forced himself to look at it that way and wondered how far he's come and how much he has changed in this process. And watching this movie again, when they cut to him in his office and he's isolated in there while they're isolated in that library setting, you are keenly aware of 
his isolation and his loneliness and a sense that he's being punished as well. He has to sit there, as we said, on this Saturday. That's what his life has amounted to. That probably isn't what he envisioned when he started out, as Carl alludes to in that conversation. All he has really going for him is power or some sense of respect, and the kids don't even give him that. So, of course, imagine how he's then going to behave. But again, I never felt any empathy for Vernon before or recognized any of myself in Vernon. And now as I watch it, I realize that there is a lot more to him than that. Well, Gleason makes him more than the butt of the joke, for sure. I mean, he is the literal butt of the joke in many instances. But because of that scene you mentioned, and he's also not just a cardboard villain because his villainy, if you can even use that word, ties into what I I think really this movie is spending a lot of time considering in its parental failure. He is treating these kids or relating to them power, the word you use, the same way that it appears most of their parents relate to them. This authoritarian power dynamic, he just puts that into place at school. That's what they're experiencing at home. And if anything, the movie is this, uh, this argument that there are more to your kids or the teenage experience than just keeping them in line mm-hmm. and making sure they do what they're supposed to do. Right. There is at least one more topic I want to get into before we finalize this review, but I thought it would make sense to hear a little bit more from John Kapalos, of course, Carl, the janitor here in this movie. As I was talking about that conversation in the basement and the relationship between Carl and Vernon, I wanted Joe to ask him about the fact that he seems to be articulating one of the key elements of the movie, almost given the theme of the movie to bestow on Vernon and the audience. And I wanted his sense of his function as a character in the movie. To me, a lot of what Carl does is kind of underlines, as one would say, the theme of the film, but also underlines the notion that you you have dreams You have aspirations. You have things you want to be. But be prepared because they are going to be crushed. And you think that detention is difficult. And you think that this world that you're in right now is difficult. You know, stay tuned. And there was a monologue that I delivered that told them they're all going to be like 25, 30 years, like today, right? I told Molly that she's going to have stretch marks from here to Zion. She's going to have five kids, a Ford Suburban. She's going to be drinking too much and her husband's not going to pay attention to her. You know, have fun with that. And I told Michael he's going to be a big lawyer. He's going to work in a big loop law firm. He's going to make big money and he's going to have a big heart attack and a big funeral at 42. I told Emilio that he's going to be a failed athlete and he's going to be a gym teacher for the rest of his life and living vicariously through his son like his father is living through him. And on and on it goes. Judd Nelson, I said, well, you're going to spend five years at Attica, four years in Chino, you know, for armed robbery. And I sort of enumerated this long list of crimes that he's going to commit. And Ali Sheedy, failed loft artist in New York, living off the kindness of strangers, et cetera. So it was a really great thing because in a way that expressed like, hey, you know, you think you've got it tough now? Stay tuned. And in a way he was sort of senior buzzkill. So John goes on to explain that Dee Dee Allen, the editor, and John Hughes ultimately decided to leave that monologue out of the film. Obviously, it's not there. And boy, are we grateful, right? I mean, can you imagine if all of that was unloaded on those kids and us as an audience? It would have been totally heavy handed and it would have been unnecessary. And 
now that I'm thinking about that smart choice by Dee Dee Allen and I'm thinking of my comments earlier about how sophisticated the editing is in this film, just before I sat down here, I thought, Dee Dee Allen, he mentioned her by name, otherwise I probably would have failed to. That sounds really familiar. I'm going to look her up on IMDb and see what else she has done. And of course, what we see is just a few movies like The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Reds. Nice. She's done She's done some work. And yeah. it certainly was a case where she had the right instinct to lose that monologue. Though it does explain, Josh, why when he says that line about the clock, by the way, is 20 minutes fast. They really react to that. And I noticed watching it this time that they seemed almost overreact to it, like it was a better little closing jab than it is. Well, it's because that was the kicker to that monologue, monologue. which would have been much funnier. And they also keep a slight variation on that. Bender delivers a little bit of that to Claire. That's true to Claire. So so we get a taste of it. That's funny he describes Carl as a buzzkill because he struck me on this watch as being pretty zen, actually. And this model of a guy who maybe didn't end up where, you know, he envisioned, but few people do and take it as it comes. And it is, it's a really good performance. Yeah. And does serve, for, for as little screen time as he got, serves a crucial function for the film. Okay, well, I told you I had one more area I wanted to get into. I just would be remiss. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't go down this path. You talked about Claire and Bender and that relationship maybe being more problematic. But I'm going to get to another clip here that I want to prompt you with, Josh, a little bit. Because back in 2007, I interviewed Ellen Page and Diablo Cody for the movie Juno. And I asked Cody about an Entertainment Weekly article I had read that she was interviewed for, where she referenced Angela Chase from My So-Called Life Mm -hmm. as a bit of a template for Juno, similar sensibilities. And I asked her if she had any others, and she mentioned Ghost World, but basically said, it's kind of sad that I can only think of a couple of examples of these kind of strong female characters on screen. And so then I asked Ellen Page if she could think of any others, and that led her to Ali Sheedy. But Ali Sheedy gets all pretty in the end for the boy. I can't believe that this is like an iconic Breaking Barriers movie. I am sorry for all the lovers of The Breakfast Club. But when I first saw that, I was like traumatized. Really? The unique girl totally changes herself. It's so strange that you brought that up because I discussed that with somebody earlier today, actually. Uh, the whole the Ali Shady thing at the end is, is deeply distressing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for what? Emilio Estevez? <laughs> you know? But he's a wrestler. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I want to know, Josh, did you find it deeply distressing, that transformation that Allison makes at the end of the film? Cody is all over the Breakfast Club 30th anniversary Blu-ray. She's in documentaries. She does love this movie and praises it considerably, but they ask her about this, and she doesn't back down from saying that she sees it as a little bit of a betrayal of that character. Allison's selling out. What do you think? Totally with her. Really? To the point, oh, oh come goodness. on. To, to the point that even my 11-year-old self, my 11-year-old self recognized, I can distinctly remember that being a letdown for me as a boy. Hmm. Because one of the characters that I probably, I mean, I... I wasn't like I would say being an introvert as a kid. I remember being feeling connected to the Ali Sheedy character to that degree. Um, there's really no type in the in that film that I identified with. Yeah, when neither. I was in high school, they're they're probably just too broad. Nobody really does. But I very much liked her character. Let me put it that way. I me thought, too. I thought she was in the performance. Just you know, someone who was really cool in that sort of in the background watching what's going on probably smarter than maybe even Brian and doling it out only when it was necessary so I really liked Allison and 
I remember being like, what is this now? No, this is no good Uh, beyond not even just not buying the romantic element of it, Mm -hmm. but this sort of what they're getting at more is like, this is not her. This is not, you know, doesn't need to happen. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm with them on that. Okay, well, I definitely see the argument for sure, but I didn't see it that way as a kid and I still don't completely see it that way now. And I think. It is worth noting the specific words that Ellen Page used there where she talks about how she can't believe people regard it as some kind of big Breaking Barriers movie and that Allison's some kind of feminist icon or something. I don't think that's something I would argue, and I've never heard anyone else argue it. So if she was coming to the movie with that weight, expecting it to live up to that, I think the movie probably really would disappoint. I suppose, too, I would ask, and I'm legitimately asking, I don't have this answer, maybe other people will share their opinion— is something that is not feminist then anti-feminist? Because I don't know that it's yeah, the it's, exact no, same it's, thing. It's beyond that. I mean, it's the makeover. The makeover okay. is never so a good me, idea. No, I, I agree <laughs> to an extent. A, it's just a bad trope. I agree to an extent, but here's here is my one counter, and this this is my genuine response to it, and it was the response when I was a kid. Does Allison really change herself for Andy? Is there a transformation or more of a reveal of who she really might be? Because that's how I see it. I think his comment to her is important. The first thing he says to her, actually, the first thing he verbalizes is, I can see your face. He finally sees her at the end of the film rather than who she's been up to this point. A girl, as I saw it and as I see it, literally hiding behind the unkempt hair and bangs and the black eyeliner. So I'd be distressed by it more if that character I ever felt was really comfortable in her own skin and she compromised her identity to win the affection of a boy. But I don't think she compromises her identity because she's still trying to discover it, just like everyone else. And so, yes, in hindsight, would it be better if she didn't put the blush on her cheeks? Would it be better if maybe she didn't strip down to that pink shirt? Okay, maybe so. But for me... It's more about stripping away than adding. Sure, sure. And, well, and I, I think that's exactly that what's be, suggested is that a mask has been removed, not added by the makeup. That could very well be what they were going for. But the method they took is hackneyed and problematic. Mm. There's no way around that. Well, I don't know that I completely buy that, but I see the argument. I think, too, to bolster my argument, I'll just say how great is it that her final moment with Andrew is her stealing the patch off his jacket. Just in case we thought... Well, she's no longer the basket case. She prettied herself all up. All of her problems have been solved by this little makeover. And now she's like everyone else, just conforming to the way high school is. Nope, she rips off that patch. And I just think that's one of those great little touches that shows how in sync Hughes was with these characters, even after a little bit of misstepping with how that reveal goes down. Unless she's going to put it on her own Letterman jacket. You know, then the transformation is complete. Maybe <laughs> I would that's love that. what was going to happen. Well, that would be fine. That would be fine. Okay. There is a lot more... I think we could talk about with The Breakfast Club, but wow, I think we've talked enough. So we, we will go ahead things. and close out there. There was a lot more good stuff we got from John Kapalos, and we really thank him for adding to this discussion, for being part of it. And what we're going to do is actually post the entire interview that he did with Golden Joe on our website. Nice. So if you're curious for more from John Kapalos, you can get that by going to filmspotting.net. Click on interviews, or you can also find a direct link in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. A VHS tape with The Breakfast Club taped from a TV broadcast. It's currently covered in a half inch of dust in your parents' basement. So if you want to go find it, 
you could go the Blu-ray route, but it might be more fun to just go digging around and find that VHS tape. Get the dust off the player, too, while you're at it. There you go. If you agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. If your NCAA bracket is already busted, no worries. There's still time to vote in Film Spotting Madness. We'll share the results of round two when we come back. Leonardo DiCaprio's new nickname? Villanova. Ouch. Stay with us. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. That's 10 seconds or fewer, Mr. Diesel, though I don't think I would ever say that to his face. Welcome back to Film Spotting. A clip there from 2001's The Fast and the Furious. Josh, when we did our top five blind spots a couple of weeks back in honor of the show's 10th anniversary, we were highlighting those movies that were really embarrassed as cinephiles mm-hmm. we've never seen. I think we failed to mention that it was the Fast and Furious Memorial top five blind spots. Because it was obviously both our number one. That's right. Yeah. So we just Too Fast, it. Too Furious would have been. Exactly. (laughs) Well, we're bringing this up because in anticipation of Furious 7, this is a case where we put our heads together like two co-hosts should and came up with a brilliant plan. I actually said to you over email or maybe it was face to face. I want to be clear how this actually started because I'm going to get the blame for this. All the cinephiles are going to put this on me. Hey, everybody so far on Twitter loves the idea. Well, because it's a great idea. I'm behind the idea, but whose was it first? It was my idea first. Like in January. I'll take the credit we're, for it. We're looking at 2015, one of the first things you throw out I there. I saw Furious 7. Boy, I said, we should maybe try to catch... I, I, th- I think like I did literally fall out of my chair when that email came in. And I checked, who's this coming from? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't even really seem... Sam might suggest this. Sam but, might. But probably not. You, Art House ahead of him. I know. I mean, I like keeping everybody on their toes. What would you have said if I had suggested this? Probably would have shot it down. (laughs) Exactly. No, how dare you? No, I thought, okay, it's time because I'm sick of seeing all these cinephiles on Twitter going crazy about Fast Five and the sixth one, which right off the top of my head, can't even remember exactly what it's called. Faster Furious, sir. If only. If you only. do make a good point, though. Th- these movies do have support among yes, serious there's some cachet fans. now, and there's yeah, even a yeah. little bit of revisionism, I think, where they're all going back yeah. through the prism of five and six and going, oh, the whole series has been great, even though everybody trashed all the earlier films, right. really, This for the is most really part. why you're willing to do this. See, I would have yeah. done it even if they'd all been trashed, but <laughs> there has been some support along the way. So. I want to be part of the dialogue. Yeah. This yeah. is a case where I want to be part of the conversation. So I said, okay, Furious 7's coming out. We can't just review Furious 7. We have to go back and 
fill in the blanks. We have to get caught up in the series. I saw the original Fast and the Furious in 2001. I did see somehow Tokyo Drift in the theater when it came out. That's the third one, but haven't seen any of the others. So I've been getting caught up. You've been getting a little bit caught up. And if you are curious, if you want a little bit of a spoiler as to how we are taking the Fast and Furious series so far. (laughs) Our initial impressions. Yeah, our initial impressions. You can read a few comments and see our star ratings if you follow us on Letterboxd.com. I'm Film Spotting, and Josh is Larson on Film. But we are going to get to that Furious 7 review and a look at the whole series because this is where your brilliant idea came out. You said we should do for the top five Fast and Furious moments. Oh, yeah. And I'm not just talking about car races and crashes and stunts. I mean, as we've already seen from The Fast and the Furious, which I liked when it first came out. Let me go on record. Okay. Early fan. There are some really good male bonding scenes. <laughs> now You we, said that if, with a straight face. Because I'm serious. Okay. Now, Adam, we're not going to be able to get through this if you're not going to be willing. <laughs> I'm willing. Yours are going to be all car crashes? All your, all your top five moments? They right. might be. Well, there's probably I'm five. Really, there are probably five good ones in the I'm really just movies. a juvenile. That's for sure. <laughs> the end of the day here. All right. So that's coming in a little bit. If you need to get caught up on the Fast and Furious series, we recommend it. Wanted to plug an event that's coming up to go in a completely different direction. We're going to do a 360 spin, and we're going to go into art house land here, but you're going to be the one to bring us there with this event that you're a part of, depending on when people are hearing this, if they're hearing it this weekend, they can still participate in this event on Wednesday, March 31st, exploring science and film. And really, when I think of science and film, right away, I think of Josh Larson. As well you should. Well, no, that's a good point. I'm, I'm getting some help here, some help that I'll need. This is a series that's looking at a number of films from the science angle as well, not just the film angle. So we're going to have, I'm going to have some help from Jesse Sedalter, and she's a U of C, University of Chicago oncologist, also an artist. And a lot of her work considers societal responses to mortality, which is crucial if you've seen Solaris. I minored in that. Did you? Mm -hmm. Okay, just didn't want to go the whole way. Mm -hmm. If you've seen Solaris, you know that this is going to be an important thing to have someone there on hand to talk about, because although it is sci-fi from director Andrei Tarkovsky, It's very much about how this crew on this spaceship visiting this planet is dealing with grief, with lost loved ones, with things like suicide, and working their way through that. I know I'm making this sound like a really fun night out, right? But it's a fantastic (laughs) film. One of the the Tarkovskys that you absolutely must see, let alone in 35mm on a big screen. And then we will be having a discussion afterwards to dig into some of this stuff. Here's a bonus for you, film spotting listeners can get in free. That's right. So Tyler worked that out for us, our friend at WBZ who's helping to put this together. So if you go to the link that we'll put in the show notes, you'll be able to get your tickets there. Of course, you go to WBEZ.org as well, and I'm sure you will find more information. The Satchajit Ray Marathon is ongoing, though it is culminating with the final film in the marathon, The Lonely Wife. We will also share our awards for the Satchajit Ray Marathon. So if you haven't been playing along and you still need to get caught up, you can hear the previous four podcasts discussing five of Ray's films if you go to filmspotting.net or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Last week, we... Didn't do any bonus content. A little bit of a late night. I think we may, even though we talked about The Breakfast Club for about 72 yeah, minutes. I mean, you kept going on and on. I don't know. Thanks. Are we still going to be able to fit this in? I don't know. But I'm hoping we will get to a little bit of our unforgiven feedback, in particular the ending and how we read the ending and respond to the ending based on our conversation with Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. That was our last Sacred Cow discussion, that Clint Eastwood film. We will share some of your responses in bonus content, including great stuff from Jeff McGee in Louisville, Texas, Shlomo Port 
Korath in Jerusalem, Brian Knoll in Salem, Oregon, and David Chester in New York, among others. So you can get that bonus content if you have the Film Spotting app on various devices, or if you go to filmspotting.net and click on apps, you can get all the info there. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a wrecking ball to take me out of here! No, really. Go ahead, Josh. You and your pal Bill Murray, go and tell Leo DiCaprio he's gotta go. He's Sorry, out. Leo. You're out. Hey, he can take the Wolf of Wall Street with him, as far as I'm concerned. The people have spoken, much to my chagrin. We are moving on to the latest results in Film Spotting Madness. We started with 32 Film Spotting favorites, actors and actresses who have earned a lot of love over the years here on the show and whose future performances we are very excited to see. But only one of them can survive to act another day. Last week, we shared the week one results. We got it down to the Sweet 16. We gave you another week to vote on those eight remaining matchups, and we are pretty briskly going to move through them. And why not start with the biggest upset of the Sweet 16, really the only major upset of the Sweet 16, because the selection committee, in doing their rankings and their math, we had DiCaprio as a number two seed, Uh and he is now gone. He is gone because Bill Murray defeated him head-to-head. How did it come out, Josh? 52% for Murray to 48% for DiCaprio. So it was close, at least. It was close. And now I know what it feels like to actually be from one of those schools that isn't supposed to go anywhere and knock off a higher seed. Mm -hmm. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. I voted for Murray, and I I love it. I never would have expected that other people would have been as perceptive as I Oh, is that it? To see that... (laughs) Bill Murray, just uh-huh. because he's older, yeah. should not be thrown in the mm. dustbin, and that we've seen DiCaprio. We know what DiCaprio does, and a lot of it is very good. But honestly, if I hear that both of them are in an upcoming movie, I'm more excited about the one Bill Murray's in. Exactly the opposite for me. Right. And I like Bill Murray, as does our producer Sam, but he nailed it when he was tweeting about this poll and trying to gin up a little support for Leo DiCaprio. I can't believe he's like, going on. He's Sam like, is doing that? Exactly. Oh. He's like... All of Bill Murray's future work versus Leo DiCaprio's future work. Choose wisely, listeners. And they didn't, unfortunately. They so didn't choose wisely. He he was just throwing out that ageism there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly just strictly it. saying that Bill Murray is going to die sooner. <laughs> I mean, what kind of... That's not no, very nice at all. It just means we're more excited about what DiCaprio's <laughs> going to bring us down the road. But we did lose. We lost to you. We lost to film spotting listeners. But I'll take some solace in how close it was. Michael Fassbender versus Marion Cotillard, Josh, I did go Fastbender. You suggested last week that you might depart. I was thinking about and it. And go with Cotillard. Is that not what you did? No. I, I did, in the end, vote for Fastbender. So How did it come out? We're together on a lot of these. This was one of them. Fastbender won with 68%, Cotillard 32. All right. Kate Blanchett faced the relatively youngish upstart Ryan Gosling. Really, I mean, he doesn't belong as much as I love him. He doesn't mm-hmm. belong. You do love him. Really, on the same stage or set as Kate Blanchett. Does he? Well, is he in that rarefied air? No, I would say no. Apparently like he you, isn't. I voted for Blanchett. 67% of the people voted for her as well, so he's out. And, you know, what I've been using is the the room comparison. If someone's in a room, as you mentioned a few weeks ago, yeah. 
Does Gosling own the room or does Blanchett own the room? I think Blanchett owns that room. Yeah, I think she might. So I, that's of no help when it comes to their future movies, but I've still been using that. Okay. Well, we were in agreement there. We were also in agreement, and we were agreeing with film spotting listeners on this one. Joaquin Phoenix over Carey Mulligan. What about the results there? 65% for Joaquin. Another one that isn't very close. Matthew McConaughey, this one a little bit closer, versus the great character actor Sam Rockwell. Now, if I knew this one was coming, but I didn't know how round one played out, I would have thought McConaughey would have smoked Rockwell. Yeah. But the fact that Rockwell advanced, pulled off an upset in the first round, I thought, okay, maybe he's got some momentum behind him. He's playing well. He could overtake Matthew McConaughey. It was Alas, close. It was close, but he didn't. 53% for McConaughey. He moves on. All right. We have two more slight upsets here. Jake Gyllenhaal, as I described them, the Hollywood beauties who maybe were pretty faces earlier in the career or were regarded that way. And I didn't really care for their work that much, but have now really come around. I think they're doing the best work of their career. Can't wait to see what's coming from both of them. That's Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal versus Scarlett Johansson. Apparently, despite all of our talking about it last year, not enough listeners saw Under the Skin, or maybe too many of them saw Nightcrawler because Gyllenhaal took this one. And we talked about that quite a bit, too. We both voted for Gyllenhaal, who got 54%. The other slight upset, two big actresses right now, Jessica Chastain versus... Jennifer Lawrence of the Hunger Games fame and Silver Linings Playbook. Jennifer Lawrence was slightly favored in this one. And Josh, you went with Jennifer Lawrence. I did not. I went with Chastain, and that's where the voters went as well. 55% for Chastain. This one hurts. I, I didn't. She's gone. I wasn't like Sam. I didn't want to rig any results. Mm. So I didn't say this early on. But this is who I was eyeing to win. Like I, I would have liked to have seen Jennifer Lawrence win this tournament. She was a really high seed. It cannot happen now. No, it can't. I really thought that she was going to advance to the final four, probably, and maybe even take it. But she ran into the buzzsaw that is Jessica Chastain. You know what that means. I'm all in on Murray now. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay, the last one here to mention. Tom Hardy versus a true film spotting favorite. Going back to Take Shelter, Shotgun Stories with Jeff Nichols, Michael Shannon. This was one of those that I think last week I said it was the most painful to vote in. Difficult. Yeah, it was tough. And how did it come out? Hardy wins. 62% of the vote. I thought this would be closer. I went with Hardy as well. It was a tough one. Yeah. I really thought Shannon might take it, though. I did think it'd be closer. I thought Hardy would win another high seed. And yes, we both voted Hardy. And that's where the film spotting listeners went. So Michael Shannon is out. So yeah, the only two we split on there were Murray and DiCaprio and Chastain and Lawrence. So we'll see what happens here as we get to the Elite Eight Four matchups here to finally get it down to that championship bout and the final film spotting favorite who is standing at the end of the day. Josh, the matchups are Fassbender versus Blanchett, Phoenix versus McConaughey, Murray, that's Bill Murray, versus Gyllenhaal, and Hardy versus Chastain. Okay, so for you, the most intriguing. Most intriguing is Hardy and Chastain. This is, I'm trying to remember the other pair that I felt this way about at the early round, but it's hard to. Like I think it was weigh them against Phoenix each other. and Mulligan. Yeah, yeah, similar, right? Yeah. Just the the presences they have are just so different. Um, although Hardy's proven his versatility for sure, but still, the way I think of them initially, it's hard to compare them. I don't know. I don't know which way I'm going to go with that one. I see what you're saying, but I see them as very similar in terms of their versatility and their ability to be character actors or to be leading men or a leading woman. So that's actually my answer to the most intriguing matchup. I do think that Michael Fassbender has his work cut out for him with Kate Blanchett. I think that one is going to be really, really close. What about then the toughest matchup, the one that's going to be the hardest for you to vote in? That is Fassbender versus Blanchett. Right now, I know I said this last time, 
And maybe when it just comes at down the end to of the day, registering that oh, vote, yeah, his the magnetic presence, pull is His presence much. will pull you back. But I'm leaning towards Blanchett at this point in time. Yeah, I, I will we'll hand Fassbender over to you officially. You can vote for him. Obviously, that one's tough, even for me. Yeah. Someone who has a restraining order taken out against him because of his adoration for Michael Fassbender. But Kate Blanchett is so, so good. For me, it really is, again, Hardy versus Chastain. That's the one that will be the toughest for me to pull the trigger on. I do think that Bill Murray versus Jake Gyllenhaal, this bodes well for your guy. I think you it's think a Murray's going to oh, take him out? I think it's a drubbing. Really? Yeah. Oh. I don't think Jake has what it takes to match up against Bill Murray. This is going to get interesting. <laughs> I'm seeing a Murray v. Fassbender You know, it's funny because I think I can speak for Sam. We've had enough conversations about this. We've been you've, so— You've had a few conversations a few, about this. A few. <laughs> We've been so into this since the first email came in from Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire, and we knew we were running with this and spending way too much of our time thinking about it. We've already started debating the 32 directors for Film Spotting yes, Madness next year. Yes, you have. And we've got our list, <laughs> even, though, even though it's going to change, of course, in a year. We both love Bill Murray. Sam and you, Josh, probably a little bit more than me, but what's there not to love about Bill Murray? And yet, I do think <laughs> if Bill Murray wins Film Spotting oh, Madness, I know this is just going to curse us. It. If he wins Film Spotting Madness... It's going to make me, and I think Sam as well, regret we ever did it. <laughs> wow. Are you going to invalidate the results entirely? I'm going to pretend it never happened. Oh, man. We won't speak of it again. You're really going to make me get out there and beat the drum for Murray, aren't you? I guess. May not be ne- The way it, yeah, you're talking, necessary. it may not be necessary. Okay, well, that's enough film spotting madness fun. We can't wait to share the results with you next week unless they come out opposite to the way I want them to. You can vote now, filmspotting.net. Adam and I are going to grab some baby Ruths in honor of the Goonies sloth, then come back to share our favorite movies of 1985. Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. We always get such great feedback and comments from our gracious listeners here as we share their donations. And Josh, this week is certainly no exception. A lot of really good stuff. We'll start with a donation from John in Orem, Utah, and Luke in Victoria, Australia. I want to make an extra donation to honor the memory of The Movie Reel, an exceptional DVD store in West Garth, Victoria, that will be permanently closing its doors this month. Film Spotting and The Movie Reel have worked in tandem for the last three years to make me aware of such masterpieces as the works of Sachajit Ray, Charlie Chaplin, and Akira Kurosawa, to name but a small few. I want everyone associated with The Movie Reel to know how much it has meant to me to feel part of a community that existed outside of my work, family, and friends. For me to know that there were others out there that felt passion for film the same way I do has been a comfort since I moved to Westgarth. You will be very sorely missed. Obviously not familiar myself directly with The Movie Reel, but after reading that email, I also want to send out a 
hearty thanks to everyone involved there and sounds like they will be missed indeed. A new Silver Club donation comes to us from a longtime supporter of the show, George Andal in Red Wing, Minnesota. He says, hi guys, congratulations on 10 years. Adam, kudos on a decade of good judgment and choices of co-hosts. Thanks for the Ray Marathon. I'm enjoying it and I hope to try some of those films when time permits. Truly a case where I would not have gotten there without film spotting. Ben Slabach, also a Silver Club donor from Orange County, California, said it's been a while since I donated, so I figured it was time to pay the dealer. This email donation has been long in the making. I started listening in 2011 around episode 351. I specifically remember getting home from a college film festival, which I had participated in the previous year, and thinking, man, I really miss making movies. So I set out to find a good film podcast to listen to, just to see if this love for cinema was real or if I was going through a phase. To make a long story short, listening to film spotting pretty much changed my life. About a year ago, I moved out here to Southern California to pursue filmmaking. I'm not sure how far I'll go with it, but at least I'm trying. Had I not started listening to your show, I'd probably still be back in Cincinnati, living in my parents' basement, doing freelance video work. Honestly, before I started listening, I wasn't even aware that other countries made movies. Now I regularly have foreign films in my end-of-year top ten list. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, The Act of Killing, and The Hunt are some of my recent favorites. I even started my own little film club back in Cincinnati. It usually only consisted of me, my parents, my brother and sister, and a friend or two. I've only donated to the show once, so I figured a 10-year anniversary is probably deserving of another donation. Thank you so much for everything that you do. As someone who works behind the camera and in front of a computer, I know that there is so much more that goes unnoticed behind the scenes. Keep up the great work. Well, that's certainly true, and we have a lot of people to thank for that help. But how great was that email? Ben, we certainly wish you all the best of luck. I think there should be a support group for people in the L.A. area who are trying to be filmmakers, who are fighting that good fight, and who also listen to film spotting. I think there's probably a few. And also like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. There you go. That should be another criteria. Yeah, I mean, give him however much money he needs to make whatever movie he wants. He obviously has very good taste, and maybe there could be a support group for not only those people trying to be filmmakers in L.A., but those who were at least partially inspired in some little part by listening to the show. There are a few of them out there. Thank you so much, Ben. We have two new $5 a month subscribers, Kathleen in Brielle, New Jersey, and Alan in West Palm Beach, Florida, and a new $10 subscriber, Ryan Jacobs in Houston, Texas, who says the anniversary episode reminded me that I needed to update and renew my PayPal subscription in order to appropriately pay the dealer. I've been listening since the podcast came online in iTunes originally. I marked the time elapsed since starting to listen to the show with my own life events. When I started listening, I was in medical school in Houston, and I since have continued listening through residency in Nashville when I became a $5 a month donor and through my fellowship back in Houston when I became a $10 a month donor. Along the way, I've gotten married and had two children. So a lot in my life has changed, as have some of the co-hosts on the show, but my love of movies and the intellectual stimulation that I get from hearing film intelligently discussed has continued. I don't really get to watch older movies anymore. I mean, really? Just being a doctor? Ryan, that's your excuse? Come on. But with some help and selection from you guys, I get to see most of the great new films each year. I am now about to embark on another and hopefully final transition to being an oncologist in Charlotte, North Carolina, specializing in clinical research in lymphoma and leukemia. I plan slash hope to continue to keep up with the show and great movies and wanted my financial support and appreciation to continue. Congratulations on all that you guys have achieved. Thanks so much, Ryan. Well, I think we could put that back on Ryan in terms of achievement. And if somehow he falls off or slacks from listening to the show while he's, I don't know, doing clinical research in lymphoma and leukemia, I suppose we'll let that go. Right, Josh?
Hey, Film Spotting listeners, sorry to be the person interrupting the show. I love Film Spotting. Anyway, I'm here to promote a podcast I produce through WBEZ called It's All True. I like to think of it as a getting to know you podcast. The way it works is I interview an interesting guest like Eddie Izzard, for instance. You started off as a street performer. Yep. It took me a year and a half to learn how to do street performing. It is so hard. It is just the Navy SEALs version of entertainment. You have to wrangle <laughs> the audience. And then I asked him to tell me a funny personal true story by revealing what the headline would be if a newspaper were to pick it up. Local woman wears soggy diaper to meet new boyfriend. And most importantly, you learn something new. Teen caught in smash and grab gone wrong. What's a smash and grab? You know what a smash and grab I've is? I've never heard of a smash and grab. At 25, you know what a smash and grab is? Yeah, an old soul. That's an old phrase. <laughs> That's, you should know. So if that tickled your fancy, you should subscribe to It's All True on iTunes and get more info at wbez.org slash podcasts. Hey, I'm Ellen Page. And I'm Diablo Cody. We are the actor and writer of the film Juno, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Where am I? You're in the records room. The records room? Oh, I'm fine. Can I get you something? Uh, yeah, do you have the Beatles White Album? Never mind, just get me a glass of hot fat. And bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia while you're out there. Well, you know you're listening to Film Spotting when we could transition into this week's top five. The films of 1985, inspired by our review earlier, our sacred cow discussion of John Hughes' classic teen comedy, The Breakfast Club, with a clip from Chevy Chase <laughs> as Fletch, not... One of those best picture winners from the year or other more esteemed classics. Going back to The Breakfast Club, talking about quotable movies, for me, Fletch is one of those. Oh, that yeah. I probably drop that line when someone asks me, can they get me anything, a jar of hot fat in the head of Alfredo Garcia? And they just look at me like I'm crazy. That happens at least weekly. Weekly? For me. Okay. Yeah. I was going to guess daily, but weekly, no, that's more not reasonable. Quite. I mean, I'm not that bad, Josh. <laughs> but Fletch, alas, despite my love for it, is not going to make my top five films of 1985, a year that was filled with really dumb comedies like Fletch oh, yeah. that I loved when I saw them in 1985. And maybe if we have time, I will share my top five films of 1985 in 1985. As it is now, we're looking back 30 years later on the films of 1985. Maybe we have a little bit different taste. Maybe older, wiser. Nah, I don't know about that. Maybe you, but you know, maybe we've seen a few more movies and have a little bit more of a pool to choose from. So just a little bit of setup though, before we dive into the top five, maybe even a little bit of trivia here, Josh, the best picture winner of 1985 is what? Oh, not something that's on my list. None of those prestige pictures made it. Mm. Was it Amadeus? Was that 85? No, that would have been a great choice. I think that was just a year or two earlier. Okay. The best picture winner in 85, 86 Oscars, of course, was Out, Out of, of Africa. Africa. That's just it. came to me. Best director, Sidney Pollack yep. for Out of Africa. Best actor, William Hurt for Kiss of the Spider Woman. Best actress. And this one, Josh, when I wrote this down today, I swear to you, you could have given me a million choices. I could have had a million guesses, and I never would have hit on the actress who won, or the movie that won that award for 1985-86, Geraldine Page for The Trip to Bountiful. Oh, yeah. How about that? A million? That might be stretching no, it, but... No, I've never heard of it. <laughs> I've never heard of it. So, no, I wouldn't have come across it. Best Supporting Actor, Donna Michi for Cocoon. Cocoon, sure. Best Supporting Actress, Angelica Houston in Pritzi's Honor. So, Honor. I will, as I like to do from time to time just completely invalidate my list before we even get started because it turns out that of those prestige Oscar nominees, four of the five Best Picture nominees from that year, I haven't seen. 
I've read The Color Purple, never seen the Spielberg movie, Kiss of the Spider Woman. I swear that when I was in college, my good friend BRK loved this movie and made me watch it. But since I can't really remember that happening, that tells you that maybe I need to revisit it. Pritzi's Honor, haven't seen, and I haven't seen Out of Africa. So maybe... We should just quit while we're ahead. Yeah, we can we can do our regrets right now if you want. I mean, I saw Out of Africa. I did see that. I've seen The Color Purple. Didn't really consider either for this list. Some of my other regrets might be on your list. So okay. I'm going to hold off on the rest of them and we'll see what happens. That sounds good. Let's get to movies we've actually seen and actually enjoy. You're number five. So looking back at this year and that era and what it represented, I found an article on The Atlantic just from this month. Garin Pernia proclaimed 1985 as the last great year in film for kids and young adults. And I'm referencing that. We'll link to the articles well in the show notes because I'm going to lean on it for justification as to why I have two family films on my list. And my number five is one of those. It's Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I got hooked on Tim Burton early on, right here from his first feature, and this was the big screen debut for television's Pee-wee Herman, played by Paul Rubens. Burton developed this new aesthetic with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You could call it animated live action. So it's Live action that looks and moves and behaves like animation. Maybe the most obvious example from Pee-wee's Big Adventure would be Large Marge, the trucker whose face transforms there. You're just always going back and forth in this magical, realism, cartoonish-type world. It even sounded like animated live action, too. This is, of course, a collaboration with Danny Elfman. The circus score he brings to Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a big part of it. (laughs) Pee-wee was irresistibly bewildering to me as a kid when he was on TV. I was in middle school at this time, and even though this was sold as a littler kid's show, I remember it quickly became cool to have watched it on Saturday, knowing that you were too old for it, and then talking about it with your friends on Monday. Pee-wee has been defined as pure Eternus. I've seen that term used, eternal boy for him. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that quite captures it. I mean, he's more manic than that. He's unpredictable. There's an element of danger to him that you don't quite get, certainly with a figure like Pinocchio, who could be described that way, or even Peter Pan, really. And watching him now in, in the clips, revisiting this, Pee-wee is clearly this transgressive character. I mean, he operates beyond any normative social identities that we even have today, and he does it in a way that's completely his own. He can't even be fully claimed by any other outsider groups. It made me think that he should have been a contender for my fringe character list, which we did in correlation to Mm -hmm. our buzzer review. I've already listed Pee-wee's Big Adventure among my top five bicycle scenes when we did that. For that moment, he elaborately changed his bike to the animatronic clown. Burton is still a filmmaker, as you know, Adam, that I can't give up on, even after the disappointing big eyes from this past Christmas. The latest news is that he's doing this live-action version of Disney's Dumbo. Mm -hmm. And I side, too, because I think his best stuff has come from original material. But then again, Dumbo's also true thematically to a lot of his really good work. So we'll see what happens there. Good pick. And I'm a fan of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, as I was when I saw it back in 1985, though really wasn't in contention for my list. My number five is a film that I think is one of the great 
Hollywood culture clash movies and one of the great unrequited love stories from maybe one of our great underrated directors. I mean, I think he's pretty well respected, but I don't know if he's really given the due he deserves. And that's Peter Weir. The movie is Witness, starring Harrison Ford. Talking about Weir, I haven't seen all of his films, but Picnic at Hanging Rock is great. We gave Dead Poet Society the Sacred Cow treatment. What was that, about a year ago? That movie held up for me. The Truman Show is a movie I liked when it came out, and then revisited it just in the past couple of years, thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I've always loved Master and Commander, which just came on a couple months ago, late at night, flipping through channels, and I got stuck watching it until the very end. And I have a similar relationship with Witness whenever it comes on. This, of course, is the movie starring Harrison Ford as John Book. He's a Philadelphia detective who's assigned to a case involving an Amish boy who witnesses a murder. The boy is Lucas Haas. Samuel, his mother Rachel, is Kelly McGillis. And Ford discovers that there are some corrupt police involved. He's injured in an attack. And he takes Rachel and Samuel back to their community. But then as he leaves, can't really drive away due to his injuries and the Amish reluctantly let him recover there where he does develop a little bit of an affectionate relationship with McGillis. I was really weighing this movie against another film that ended up being my first honorable mention. And really what I came back to, Josh, I don't have any grand take on why Witness is good the way you had some really good thoughts there on Pee Wee Herman. But just in terms of purely memorable scenes, the number of scenes off the top of my head when I haven't seen this movie in several years that I could go to and not just think about the basic dynamics of the scene, but really go back to the emotions of the scene and my reaction to it. That's what separated this movie for me. There's the great scene where the Amish are being ridiculed by some townies and they won't fight back, of course, but John Book really isn't Amish and he can't help himself and he does strike back. The scene where the grandfather teaches Lucas Haas about the gun of the hand at the table. This gun of the hand is for the taking of human life. We believe it is wrong to take life. That is only for God. Many times wars have come. And people have said to us, you must fight, you must kill. It is the only way to preserve the good. But Samuel, there is never only one way. Remember that. Great scene. The scene early in the film where Lucas Haas is looking at a photo case, like a trophy case type of thing, at the police station, and he's just gone through a booklet of different people's faces and hasn't seen anybody who looked like the killer. And the way Lucas Haas just kneels on the ground and he stares with his mouth agape and then just turns at Harrison Ford. He's he's speechless. He's seeing the guy and it's there at the police station. And just that silence and the way he turns and looks at Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is able from across the room to see that something's wrong. And he comes over and the kid points to Danny Glover as the cop in the photo. And Harrison Ford just pushes his finger down Mm -hmm. and nods. It's such a good scene. And there are others, the barn raising for the newlyweds in the Amish community when they're working on the car and what a wonderful world comes on the radio. And John starts dancing with Rachel to that. And the final shootout, I think, is pretty thrilling as well. So there are others, actually, that I didn't list from Witness. So it's my number five. It's my number six. And Peter Weir is interesting. You know, it's it's been 
Wow. Master and Commander was 2003. He did make the way back in 2010, which I didn't see. No, we didn't hear that. all that much about. So I think if anything, it's just because he hasn't been all that active lately, mm -hmm. but definitely a really, really strong filmmaker. Not perhaps as strong as the filmmakers I have at number four with their debut. That would be Joel and Ethan Cohen, who gave us Blood Simple. They came out of the gates with this neo-noir. It played a few festivals in late 1984, then played Sundance in January of 85 and got a theatrical release afterwards. I currently have Blood Simple ranked as my number 12 Coen Brothers film. Wow. Which seems ridiculous, but then you start looking at the titles ahead of it, and it's just so difficult to move some of those around. I mean, these guys, when it's all said and done, they're they're going to be one of the all-time greats for sure. Well, it all started with this showy neo-noir thriller, which takes familiar pulp material. You've got adultery, murder, double crosses, and it pumps them up with nihilism, violence, and loquacious criminals. M. Emmett Walsh does most of the rambling talking here very memorably. It also ups the ante with the camera work. This was uh, cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld that the Coens were working with. And Men in Black. They, yep, went on to some good stuff, and boy, so is, this, boy is this show-offy. I mean, you talk about being aware that the camera is a oh, camera yeah. and involved in the film. It mm -hmm. is like another character. Probably the most memorable shot is when the camera crawls along the bar and hops over the drunk who mm -hmm. slumped on top of it. This sort of stuff, when I was a kid just getting into cinema, thrilled me. You know, when you start recognizing, oh, yeah, there's a camera there and that's what it's doing and here's why. It's just irresistible. So the Coens have obviously learned how to dole out that technique with a bit more precision as their career has gone on. But still, overall, I think Blood Simple holds up. Yeah, it's really good. And I was just talking about the movie that Witness just edged out. Maybe if I had revisited Blood Simple, it would have edged out Witness. But as it is, it's my number six. I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan and we were joking about film spotting madness and next year how we'll do 30 two directors and only one survives, the Coen brothers will be a very high seed. That's not going to change in the coming year. Coen brothers, Anderson, yep. and I'm going to have to lobby for Wes Anderson. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope you mean Paul it's Thomas gonna be, Anderson. It's going to be a, it's going to be an Anderson championship. You that know what? Would be fun. We've already done that death match, so we know how it would come out. That's true. Yeah, but that very well could happen with film spotting listeners. While you were rambling there, I was tuning you out by going to rambling? my, yeah, rambling? Well, you know, I was going to my ranking of the Coen brothers okay. films on Letterboxd, and I have Blood Simple at number eight. Wow. So not quite as low as you, but number eight, you're right. I yeah, really, look at the really ones like above Blood it. Simple. It just speaks to how much I love <laughs> yep. the seven films ahead of it. So great pick. My number four is a movie that I've probably praised enough over the years, though it's not the go-to movie for this director. A director who, as much as I love him, will not make the final 32 of Film Spotting Madness. He is Woody Allen. The film is right now my fifth-ranked Woody Allen movie. It's The Purple Rose of Cairo. Back in film school, I wrote like a 10 to 12-page paper for a class comparing this movie to Fellini's Knights of Cabiria and tried to explain why Woody might say, as he has multiple times, that Purple Rose of Cairo is his personal favorite film. He thinks it's his best film. I will not regurgitate that paper here, Josh. Thank you. I know you are grateful. There's probably a little rambling in there. <laughs> Just a little. This is the film set in the Great Depression where Mia Farrow plays Cecilia, who escapes her dreary waitressing job and her dreary marriage to Danny Aiello at the movies. She keeps going to these fantasies and these screwball comedy types of films and these 
dance film. She goes to see Top Hat and she gets lost in those fantasies. This is a movie, Purple Rose, that gets most often compared to Sherlock Jr. For good reason, Buster Keaton there entering the film world. But that is a dream. And here what Woody does is he inverts that and makes it part of the actual story, part of the reality of this film that Tom Baxter, a character in the movie world played by Jeff Daniels, walks off the screen and enters the real world after repeatedly seeing Mia Farrow staring up at him. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. And here I am now. I'm on the verge of a madcap Manhattan weekend my god you must really love this picture me you've been here all day and i've seen you here twice before you mean me yes you 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 this is the fifth time you're seeing this henry come here quickly i gotta speak to you (gasps) we then get the added meta layer of the actor who plays tom gil shepherd of course also daniels coming to New York to intervene to try to convince his character to go back up on screen and not ruin his career. And there is that wonderfully poetic dilemma that arises. Will Cecilia choose the fantasy over the reality? And that is an appropriate dilemma in talking about the ending of the film as well, which I won't get into too many details about, but apparently there was a lot of pressure on Woody to change the ending and make it a little more hopeful and a little more upbeat. And he was asked in an interview, I think for Esquire, why he didn't do it. And he said, that was the happy ending. And if you see the movie and you like the movie as much as I do, you think, of course, it is the happy ending because she really does make the only choice she can at the end of this film. The only choice we all have, Josh, when faced with the harshness of reality, and that's to go on and ultimately to re-embrace the fantasy. It's the only escape we have. That is part of why we go to the movies and part of the reason I love The Purple Rose of Cairo. That was one of the regrets I was thinking of. You're clearly a bigger Woody Allen fan than I am, but I do want to catch up with some of his early stuff. Purple Rose of Cairo is one of those titles. My number three is Brazil, which is maybe not Terry Gilliam's best film as a director, but I think it's probably his definitive one. It's very Orwellian and Kafkaesque, but it imagines the worldviews of those two writers through Gilliam's own brand of whacked out sci-fi absurdism. Jonathan Price stars here as a government worker in this machine-obsessed but malfunctioning totalitarian society who's trying to find this woman who keeps appearing in his dreams. The film also has Michael Palin, Bob Hoskins, and Robert De Niro in comic supporting parts. It's a really bitter and dispiriting film. The ending in particular is pretty depressing. But there's so much quick craziness going on that you hardly notice that until you stop to think about it. The movie almost distracts you from its own satire, even though that sort of societal myopia is exactly what it's satirizing in a lot of ways. Visually, it's goofy, but also nightmarish at the same time. There's the one scene of Price being interrogated in this colossal circular room, and the guy is wearing an adult-sized baby mask. He also turns out to be someone that Price knew, a former friend. Basically, everything that's ridiculous in our world, from extreme plastic surgery to unnecessary government regulations, it's all heightened and sped up here. So as crazy as it is, Brazil is a really good test for whether or not Gilliam is your cup of tea. If it's too much for you, probably go more towards The Fisher King, which in my mind is probably his best film, but not the one that maybe represents him the best. Well, that's interesting you say that because that's probably where I fall. I consider myself to be a Terry Gilliam fan, and yet The Fisher King is right up there, maybe is my favorite Terry Gilliam film, which, as we've talked about that movie before, is his most straightforward. And Brazil, I'm a broken record, 
on this film because it's a movie that I saw probably 15 years ago as I was really just getting into Gilliam and based on its reputation was ready to be blown away mm. and think it was one of the greatest films of all time. And I was underwhelmed. And that really is all I can say about it. I've suggested it many times and I hope that we have this opportunity now since we did The Breakfast Club. Maybe we have to wait five years to come up with an appropriate anniversary to mark. But this is a perfect Sacred Cow opportunity yeah. for me. I would it's love, been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, too. I'd love to revisit Brazil and see if I can actually come up with something of substance to say in its favor or against it. My number three is The Breakfast Club. This will be brief because I will just direct you back to... Are you to, sure? I think there's a few things you didn't get to. There are. Actually, you know what? Don't make me get out <laughs> no, my notes. No, no, I was kidding. I will kidding. go back to them, Josh. But yeah, go back and hear that earlier review if you missed it. And if you do want to apply the test that occasionally we do, or at least I like to do here with these year-by-year lists on the show, where you're picking the five movies from the year that will survive for future generations to see... That's how you narrow it down. Your five are the ones that are going to last. Every other movie is going to be destroyed. Which ones do you pick? I think The Breakfast Club has to be in that black box. I think it's the ultimate time capsule movie in that it's representative of the year slash decade that it was made. And it informs our understanding of that time. But it doesn't feel like, as we went into great detail about, a relic of its time because its core truths are timeless. That brings us to our top two films of 1985. And we feared that we might have a little bit of overlap with this list. So we shared our choices in advance. And it turns out that we had the same two films in the top two slots. We just had them in a slightly different order. And I do think that that might prompt a halfway interesting conversation. I won't promise anything more than that about how we come at lists like this in terms of that little distinction, if you make it, between your favorite Mm. And your best. Yeah. I so don't, no, I, I see where you're that going you with choose. that. You're accusing me of being no. nostalgic with No this? accusations. <laughs> no accusations. I'm okay. simply trying just, to prompt a conversation. I'm processing that. So what we're holding up against each other is my number two film, Ron, and my number one film, Back to the Future. That's You've it. You've got those reversed. That's right. And... I spoke about Ron last week when we did our top five movies about royalty tied to Cinderella. It was my number one there. Uh, so I won't go into too much about what I love about the film. Um, Akira Kurosawa. Right. And just how I do think it stands as one of the timeless pictures. This wasn't an easy choice to make. I'll, I'll put it that way. But I feel very comfortable going with Back to the Future at number one. I think timeless applies to that in a number of ways. It is clearly more of a personal film mm -hmm. for me because this is something I did see and loved and blew my mind in 1985. Ron was something I think I said in the last show I saw in 2000. So completely different experiences. So obviously nostalgia is a factor here. Yet Back to the Future is also one of those that I revisited a number of times, different stages in my life, and really just does keep getting richer and richer. I wouldn't normally get a chance to talk about it. I love this movie so much because it's been in my penalty box. I had it on show 490 for my top five car scenes list. I had it for show 384, top five mother-son relationship movies. But one of the reasons it's here at number one is probably why it was also on my list of the top five things we learned at the movies. We did that at our 400 live show. That's right. If you remember. One of my favorite top five list that we've done. And I completely forgot that Back to the Future actually made your list. Yeah, that, that was a really fun list to put together. And the lesson there was, for me, the world existed before me. I talked about how 
Michael J. Fox's Marty McFly has this world-blowing realization that his parents had lives before him. And, of course, this is what he discovers when he travels back in time to their high school days. It made for great human drama, in addition to all these sci-fi thrills. And what I talked about then was how it opened up my own time-space continuum so that I realized the world didn't revolve around me. And keep in mind, this is something that's pretty hard to do for a kid who's in middle school, to make them realize that the world doesn't revolve around you. Now, on top of all that, it's wildly entertaining. It's very funny. Established Robert Zemeckis as one of our genius populist filmmakers. I mean, he's clearly populist, but in that realm, there aren't too many. Maybe Spielberg does it better than him and maybe a few others we could think of, but he's up there. And I do think, speaking to your time capsule idea, that this is the perfect time capsule film. It also, in addition no to doing all there on this your part, other stuff. Since it's all about time travel. Well, because of that and also the things that we both liked about The Breakfast Club, I think you can find here in terms of teen authenticity. Hmm. 1.21 gigawatts. Great Scott. What? What the hell is a gigawatt? How could I have been so careless? 1.21 gigawatts. Tom, how am I going to generate that kind of power? It can't be done, can it? But all we need is a little plutonium. Oh, I'm sure that in 1985, plutonium is available in every corner drugstore, but in 1955, it's a little hard to come by. Marty, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you're stuck here. Whoa, whoa, Doc, stuck here? I can't, I can't be stuck here. I got a life in 1985. I got a girl. Is she pretty? Oh, she's beautiful. She's I love Back to the Future, so this is really not going to be much of a heated argument, but I guess for me, especially when I'm applying such strict criteria with such high stakes, destroying films for all time and only hanging on to the five that I think are essential, that favorite versus best quandary works for me here because I think you do have to ultimately ask yourself what matters more. Is Back to the Future the cinematic achievement that Ron is? I don't think anybody could really argue that. Is it more entertaining? Absolutely. It's more entertaining. And it is a movie like The Breakfast Club for me, Josh. I watched probably a thousand times. If we put it in right now, I think I could quote every single line along with the film. I wanted to be Marty McFly more than I wanted to be any character in The Breakfast Club. I maybe have shared this before, but in fifth grade, our school had a lip sync contest. I got my dad's guitar out, hadn't taken a lesson, didn't know how to play. And I did the lip sync to Johnny B. Good, not the original Chuck Berry, but the version from Back to the Future. And I literally just got up on stage and mimicked everything Michael J. Fox does in that big performance scene. And from what I've heard about your singing, that was a wise decision. Exactly. To go with the <laughs> Nice callback there, Josh, to a previous episode. But in weighing these against each other, I guess this is the more pretentious art house guy in me coming out a little bit. Not that you don't have your share of pretension in you from time to time, Josh, but Ron is just one of those films, like I said, that I think is essential viewing. And it's funny that you look to Back to the Future and the previous top five lists it's made and some that you maybe left it off because You've talked about it too much. That's kind of where I went with Ron. It's made some past top fives. I left it off the royalty list last week just because I knew you were going to put it there. Otherwise, probably would have been my number one. But if you're forming top five lists of some of them we haven't done, but I would say Ron qualifies as being at least a top five pick, maybe even the top choice for all of these potential top five lists. If you're doing movies that are Shakespeare adaptations, of course, being a King Lear adaptation, it would make any list about movies about ambition, movies about power, about greed, about family, about siblings, about parent-child relationships, about the use of color. We mentioned that last week. Nature, 
royalty, battle scenes, bloody movies, revenge, sword movies, which we've done on film spotting, and movies about madness. I could probably come up with 20 other subjects or topics that Ron should be in the conversation anytime you're talking about those kinds of films. It's just that good. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. It's colossal. Uh, but I do think that sometimes when we use a term like cinematic achievement, we can be limiting if we're thinking of it in terms of even thematic, not even just thematic scope, but visual scope um, and how we define what that sort of achievement is. Again, it's, you know, it's senseless to hold these two films up against yeah, each other. There's, I love both of there's, them. Yeah, we both love them. But I guess I like to have a little room in the cinematic achievement definition for a film like Back to the Future. So hmm. I, I, I don't see them um, that far away from each other in terms of that. Fair enough. Those are our top five films of 1985. Any other choices that were tough to omit, Josh? I did think about The Breakfast Club for being one of the top five because I did like this revisit quite a bit. Fletch also, I considered, couldn't quite put it that high. Silverado was a movie that I loved in 85. Really? The Mm -hmm. Lawrence Kasdan Western has Kevin Costner and Kevin Kline. Would have needed to revisit it again before putting it that high. And I want to get a couple of regrets out of the way here as well. These aren't films that I pushed aside but just haven't seen. And it probably makes my list null and void that I haven't seen them. Showa, Taipei Story from Edward Yang, William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. Mm-hmm. An Eastwood picture came out in 85 that's Pale very Rider. well regarded. Pale Rider. Pritzi's Honor, we mentioned, is one of the Best Picture nominees, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't see that one. And also Reanimator, a cult classic. Reanimator. I've never been able to see. Here on Film Spotting, back in the day, Sam and I, as part of our classic horror movies marathon. Didn't make it in your top five. No, huh? but I thought about it. Yeah, it's a okay. good film. I wouldn't necessarily call it an honorable mention, but just outside. The movies I really did consider, I already threw out one of them that made your list, The Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. I did strongly consider William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. and also Albert Brooks's Lost in America. Very funny movie from 85. I said that I might get to my top five films of 1985 as they were in 1985, and I think if I had forced myself to sit down, it would have looked like this. Number five, I'd have Real Genius and Vision Quest, because even then, I would have cheated. (laughs) They'd have to share a slot. (laughs) They'd have to share a slot, but I'd have Real Genius with Vision Quest. Number four, another John Hughes movie from 85, though not the achievement. The Breakfast Club is Weird Science. Number three, Fletch. Number two, The Breakfast Club. And number one is Back to the Future. So a little bit of overlap there with my list here 30 years later. All of those dumb comedies in there. There were even more from 1985 that I love, Josh. Michael J. Fox in Teen Wolf, Spies Like Us, John Cusack in Better Off Dead, Clue, I had a lot of fun with that film, and a little film that really ended up being the funniest movie of 1985, Rocky IV. Oh, man. Yikes. Though that was mostly unintentional. For me, I could go through the list of regrets. I won't bore everyone. I'll give you two titles. You mentioned one of them, Pale Rider. The other one is the Russian film Come and See. Already had people out in droves on Twitter telling us yeah, we better make our list. For that. It's not going to make our list, but maybe someday. Isn't Rocky Four supposed to be one of the good ones? I don't know. You keep track. I don't of these think things. anybody thinks Rocky Four is one no, of the good ones. Is it's that... better than Rocky Five. Come on now. <laughs> Come on. Everything's better than Rocky Five. Oh, though. wait. Is Rocky Five the one I like? It no, is. No, you right? like Rocky Six. How dare you? You don't Rocky even know Balboa. which Rocky movie you well, like. Well, that's because the number's not in the it's title, so I'm lost. Rocky Balboa is really good. Rocky Fast and Furious. <laughs> Off the top of my head, if I had made the list then, it would have been remarkably similar to what I have now. Pee Wee would have made it. 
You haven't and evolved at all. <laughs> I haven't evolved at all. Definitely Back to the Future would have made it, but I would have had on there Fletch and, of Good. course, the Goonies. Yeah. See, the Goonies for me is one of those I didn't even love in 85. Yeah. No. You, were, you were onto something. I did a revisit recently. Eh. Didn't hold up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, why did we have I've to end matured. on that? Why did we have to end on that? Now we're going to get legitimate hate mail over not appreciating Goonies, Goonies fans. enough. Again, our top five movies of 1985. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show. We really hope you have the Goonies at number one where it belongs. <laughs> Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. Larson on film is me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of of show archives and take part in round three of Film Spotting Madness. Eight actors remain. Only one survives to act another day. Go, Bill Murray. Oh, Team Murray. Out in wide release, Get Hard, Will Ferrell and Kevin Hart in The White Guy Going to Prison. Comedy, I do use that term loosely because every scene I have watched from that film. Painful. Painful. Yeah. And Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell are both funny guys. They are quite funny. Wow. This does not look to be quite funny. No, the animated comedy about an alien takeover home is also out wide in limited release. At the music box, this movie, speaking of the Coen brothers, should be right up our alleys. Kumiko, the treasure hunter, a Japanese woman, goes on a Fargo-inspired treasure hunt. So what we know about it is she basically comes to believe that the treasure, if you will, in Fargo is buried out there. The money is out there somewhere, and she's going to actually... So it directly references Try Fargo. to get it. Yes, it directly references Fargo. Interesting. I mean, okay. I'm the king of all things meta, so I should adore this film, and we're hoping to catch up with it. On VOD of interest, perhaps, The Forger, an art world thriller with John Travolta, Christopher Plummer, and the young actor we like a lot, Ty Sheridan. Yes. And Welcome to New York. This is Abel Ferrara with Gerard Depardieu in the fictionalized retelling of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, that story from 2011 where the French official was accused of sexually assaulting a maid in New York City. And it follows the much-hyped horror film, the supposed best horror film since Blair Witch Project or whatever moniker you want to put on it. We suggested last week that we might get to it. Obviously, we didn't. We went the Breakfast Club path instead. But next week, it's going to happen. It's it getting follows. a wider release, too. It is. So I more think like 1,200 people should be able screens. to see it. Yeah. That's right. So hopefully you will get a chance to see it and follow along with that review. The top five list, we're weighing our options. You will just have to wait and see next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Everybody's very, you're gonna, you're gonna You're trying to take Ghostbusters to with you. Them. You're trying to... I'm not, e- I'm not Wes even Anderson's that, in- I'm not even that into Ghostbusters. The man's only gotten better the older he's I know, gotten. No, you're right. I know. <laughs> you're trying to take all of Wes Anderson with you. Yeah. I didn't even think about all oh, It's not like man. Wes Anderson doesn't go away because he loses, okay? I should have said that. But but his movies, <laughs> you won't get more his movies Bill Murray will be so much less without Murray. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I see I see Wes Anderson's best film coming yet and it features i hope so and it features 
Bill Murray. It will even top Rushmore in his use of Bill Murray. That's why I may have to vote for him. That's a bold statement. Through the rest of the tournament. He may need Bill Murray to create his the masterpiece of his career. Mm. Okay. I'm talking myself into voting for Murray all the way through. Mm. I can't believe Lawrence. Yeah, to Chastain. But it makes sense. I mean, if you think about our listeners who voted Carrie Mulligan in over whoever she faced in round one, yeah, that was like, a popular choice. The weird thing with Lawrence is it's like people have forgotten Winter's Bone. You know, it's like she's going to yeah. have to make another Winter's Bone before they realize. Yeah, it might be. How good yeah. she really is. I know. I know. I, I thought I thought at the end of the That's day. That's ridiculous that she's I out. thought that we praised that her enough. That should invalidate the tournament. There you go. I thought that we praised her enough and that we talked about how good she was. It's just that Chastain's like a capital T thespian. She's a capital A actress. And people don't give Lawrence that credit. Right. That's true. Okay. Here we go. Hanging myself out to dry as the anti-feminist. Just a just a sexist you pig. Bring on the feedback. You can't. I like Cinderella, and I I, I think oh, that's that, not going to matter anymore. No, actually, that hurts me. Remember, because we think the movie, uh, uh, the people who think it's anti-feminist, we yeah. defended the movie. Okay, that's true. So this is just more evidence of my uh, misogyny. That, uh... <laughs> but no, I really, I, I'm surprised it's though a little ter- bit that. It's- it, it struck me forgetting as how they show it when I was young. Yeah, see, I wish I had had that reaction. I'd feel a little more cultured. I, I loved it when I was a well, kid. it wasn't a culture. It, it's a purely I liked, character thing. I, I liked it. I liked it in the moment. I liked the reveal. I fell for it. I, the music, everything <sighs> as a kid. Less enamored with it this time, Yeah. but still absolutely see it as her finally taking off a mask. That's how I see it. It just is. I'm sorry. And it's probably a case of them trying to communicate that. Mm-hmm. But again, it's just not, right. not the best way to go about it. Okay. What, the way they went about it is rooted in some like troublesome assumptions. Maybe. Let's put it that way. Sheedy, Sheedy that, actually addresses it on the DVD. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And other characters defend it and other, other people sure. take shots at it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things also you can over. It's why I didn't even feel the need to bring it up, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, because that's how I read it. It strikes me that way. Mm-hmm. I think it's problematic, but I don't think it's one of the like people can be outraged over it, like Ellen Page and, was. Yeah, but she, you know, she sounds outraged while still liking the film. Yeah, though. I don't think she does. Yeah, but oh, Cat Cody okay. does. Yeah, okay. Like Page really was seemed to be holding it against. Oh, the movie. interesting. Yeah, she's like, yeah. I'm sorry, all you Breakfast Club lovers out there. Like, she's really. So that's a yeah. case where. Yeah, I agree with the reading, but I think it's a little strong to like hold it against the entire film. Exactly. Okay. 